Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today we have another special episode dedicated to the effect of COVID on our built environment, both the short-term and long-term post-vaccine impacts of COVID, this time from a design perspective. On today's show, we speak to Andy Cohen, the co-CEO of Gensler, the world's largest design and planning consulting firm. Our long-term listeners will remember our conversation about a year ago with Art Gensler, where we talked about Art's founding of the firm and its secret sauce, the subjects that prior to COVID were the core themes of our podcast. We've now moved with both the COVID issue and Black Lives Matter into more topical subjects, but we'll continue always to talk about leadership. I think this is the first time that we're returning to the same company on a show, but I could not imagine a better person to drill down on the big picture meaning of COVID from the perspective of the buildings that we build and the people who inhabit them, particularly in the office environment, than Andy. There's a pregnant pause towards the end of the conversation with Andy. We're talking about the big picture challenges in our cities. Andy started talking about the housing crisis. We were running out of time, so we made that a short part of the conversation. You all know that the housing challenge is one of my passion subjects and one of the continuing themes on leading voices, but we didn't have time to go down that rabbit hole with Andy. But the next interview will be focused on that topic. I will be talking with Connor Doherty from the New York Times, who just put out a book called Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. I'm excited to get an outsider's perspective, and a New York Times journalist who's covering our industry certainly fits the bill on the hows and whys of the perception of our industry among the general public, and what floats in particular the anti-NIMBY, or the NIMBY, anti-developer sentiment and the anti-landlord sentiment. Along just the sheer numbers of the housing shortage in these issues, this will be an interesting conversation. I again want to thank our six guests from our last episode who shared their views as senior black real estate professionals on the work that we must do to make our industry a more inclusive business and the work that we must do to have a more positive impact on our communities, particularly those communities of color. We had a huge response from our listeners on this episode, and we will very much keep returning to these themes and leading voices. I hope that you're staying safe and staying during the protracted crisis that is COVID. As we all know, the numbers are going up again, demonstrating that until there's a cure, we're definitely in for the long haul on finding ways to cope with this thing. We will continue to explore both the coping mechanisms and the long-term post-cure impacts of COVID through leading voices, so stay tuned. Thanks again for being a listener. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and pass an episode on to a friend to get them to subscribe. If you're loving it, rate us on iTunes. You can get in touch with me directly at matt at terrasearchpartners.com or comment on our LinkedIn posts. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation with Andy Cohen. Well, thank you for being on Leading Voices, Andy. In COVID, we've changed all of our thinking and programming to really focus on what's happening right now, a little bit about leadership journeys, but maybe it takes leadership to get us through COVID. So, and I think you're in the middle of that. Absolutely. We're absolutely in the middle of it. And uh, I have determined optimism that we're all going to come through this together stronger. That's for sure. Good. Well, I think it's optimism and hope that it's a basic human element. If you can't do it, then it's maybe that's a big part of leadership because I've heard it from everyone on that this particular subject that hope I hear again and again and optimism again and again. You have to be an optimist. You know, you have to have that determined optimism to get through times like this. You know, in all our careers, you know, we've all been through ups and downs, different recessions. This one is a lot tougher because it's not only a recession, but also a global pandemic that we're all dealing with. So, you know, that's the only way that my partner, Diane, and I can get through this is with determined optimism. Absolutely. So for our audience, just to orient us to you, who are you? What do you do? What, what is Gensler and what does co-CEO mean? Well, first of all, thank you, Matt, for having me on this. This is fantastic that you're doing this. And I appreciate you, you know, reaching out to leaders around the world and, you know, putting us together. My identity is actually wrapped up in Gensler for a long time. I'm co-CEO of Gensler with my partner, Diane Hoskins. I've been with Gensler. This is going on my 40th year at Gensler. I started when I was five years old, so I was very young when I got going <laughs> We are a global firm, global architectural and design firm. We have offices in 50 cities around the globe. Last year, we worked in over 100 countries. We're involved in many different practice or practice areas, anything from designing offices and workplaces to retail, 
to entertainment, to hospitality, to airports and so forth. So we've really built up our breadth and diversity, geographic breadth around the world mm -hmm. and the incredible practice areas that we're involved with in client expertise around the world. And so we are the largest and I think the most admired firm in the world. And we're very proud of that. And that with that comes a lot of responsibility. You know, we're especially in these times that we're dealing with is the idea of, you know, what we've been focused on and we'll talk a little bit more about is redefining and shaping the future of cities. And I'll explain more about that, but it's been a, a great ride at Gensler. I've only been with one firm and I'll tell you that story if you want to about how I came to Gensler. We may come to that at the end of the conversation. This used to be the topic of leading voices, which is how did you get here as the first in order of business? But what's more interesting is you said reinventing cities you say the word responsibility. I'm also thinking you bring a ton of perspective, maybe more than anyone, because at your firm and leading the firm, you get to see every aspect of the business all over the world. So think about what COVID means. And let's just jump into the conversation about it. And sure. I'm going to let me raise four topics here and then we'll get to each of them. But I want to make sure by the end of the conversation, we get to all of them. So First one, COVID from two perspectives, both pre-vaccine and post-vaccine, if that's quick enough. Two is to make sure we dig into the office environment because that might be the roots of your firm and that which you have the deepest expertise. Third, I want to broaden to all subjects of real estate outside of office and think about density. And then fourth, I want to get a global perspective. So that's a lot to talk about in Great. a quick hour. <laughs> Let's dig into it. I love it. So when I say pre-vaccine and post-vaccine, what does that mean to you and what does that mean in your work? Talk about that. Let me frame it up a little bit because cool. as a global firm, my firm actually and my partners and I had to deal with COVID early mm -hmm. because we have offices in Shanghai and Beijing and uh, Hong Kong. It, come December of last year in January, we were already dealing with and knew that our offices had to go home. So they already were going working from home in January in China. And so we had a precursor to what this pandemic was about. We didn't know it was going to come to the U.S., but we knew right away in the business that we're in, we had to get all our drawings up to the cloud because we knew if people are going to be working from home and we work on very technical projects, you know, right. very uh, right. big files, we had to get everything to the cloud. So we immediately took all our drawings to the cloud with the anticipation that potentially we'd have to work from home. And indeed, Come March, we were one of the first firms that made the decision early on, knowing what took place in China, to get our people home. So we sent our people home early, knowing that this uh, was a very, very serious pandemic that was coming our way in the U.S. Mm -hmm. You know, defining for our clients, and I'm talking to clients every day about the idea of where we are today and going back and the re-entry back into the workplace, the re-entry back into hotels and retail and offices and so forth, airports. So I focused a lot on that re-entry right now. Right. But as important as you mentioned, Matt, is the idea that we're hearing that there potentially will be a vaccine first quarter next year. And with that, what are the changes that are taking place right now that will be the reimagined future mm -hmm. of these great places that we're designing? And so we're doing the quick fix right now with our clients, the re-entry plans. We, too, are creating a lot of webinars around the idea of what it means to re-enter the workplace and all the different things that have to take place in order to make them safe mm -hmm. for people. Mm -hmm. And then we're focused on the reimagined future. What you know? What's the future trends that will stick and obviously create a better world through the power of design? Uh -huh. And talk a little bit about, because you guys think about the future. You're planning the future all the time, and you did pre-COVID. And you did pre-9-11 to think of two maybe unrelated but maybe related things. How much has your thinking about the future changed because of COVID? Well, let me put a word in here that we have what's called the Gensler Research Institute. So we have a team of people that are constantly researching trends. And we have put a lot of uh, thought leadership out in the marketplace. If uh, you, know, you, you go to our website, all around COVID. And so we have our researchers and our people really focused on the latest trends. Uh, clearly, we're seeing right now that I'll give you an example that in, and I know we're going there anyway, that say, let's take the uh, office space mm -hmm. and the idea that 
so much of office space was going to open work environment, open plan with rows and rows of desks. Right. And right now we're having to relook at the open plan because clearly with the six foot spacing or larger, you know, mm -hmm. we're even recommending eight foot spacing, that people are going to be sitting further apart. We're going to have to create other types of work environments and groupings that'll work beyond just the open plan that has become so pervasive in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So that's just an example of our research that we're putting out there. I'll give you another example. Hey, hey, one sec. Let, before the other example, let me drill into the open plan, and we're going to go bouncing back and forth to future and present. But if I think, does the open plan, is it eight feet for now during the get back to work quick? And then post-vaccine, does it go back to squinched up together? So there are long-term behaviors that change around that. And are there gating abilities so that they're quick, close together, but then, boom, you have the ability to push people apart? Any thoughts on that? Well, we already designed before COVID the flexibility of flexing, you know, work environments where they can have different spacing based on the staffing levels. Right. You know, definitely. But I think that in a post-COVID world, we think that the pendulum of going from private office to the open work plan mm -hmm. is now changing again. And this is going to be, we do think there will be a trend and a shift away from just wide open workplaces, mm -hmm. wide open bullpen spaces with people facing one another and more grouping environments where maybe people, you know, we're designing stations right now where people aren't facing each other. Why would that take place? Not only for COVID and safety, mm -hmm. but also for acoustic separation. Because what we found before COVID mm -hmm. and now we're solving for during COVID is that the spacing will allow people now to finally think when they're working because the open work environment didn't work very well for acoustics. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing that the COVID is a milestone that's going to change the open work environment, that's going to change the workplace environment for people, creating more group gathering places that are you know, appropriate for the type of work they're doing, mm -hmm. but not the ubiquitous space. I'll use a word, you know, not the WeWork kind of space where it's just rows and rows of desks. Mm -hmm. In that case, by the way, that's more free address, which I think is a real problem because people don't sit in the same desk every day. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing this as a really fulcrum point that's going to change how the workplace is going to be designed. And we're working on designs right now for our clients in that, in that mm -hmm. mode. And let's go back to two or three points about that. So I'm in co-working and we're in an industrial space, so not WeWork. I have a private office that I'm actually giving up next week, which whole another conversation. But I love that. So I love the flexibility of that. And I don't want to go back to an office with a closed wooden door where I can't see people. I still want the liveliness that you get both from co-working, because I'm a small company. There's four of us. I don't want the four of us in an office alone. And B, I want the live and I want the optionality of that. So we all want the liveliness, but we don't want to be in long tables. But that was the extreme, not the norm, I think. And what you're pointing out, Matt, is exactly what we're hearing. People want clusters. They want neighborhoods. They want the diversity to work in different work environments, but they don't want to be in rows and rows of desks anymore. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, though, we also, people want a lot of privacy. So you have the ability, even if you're working the open plan, to go into a conference room that's close by or a cluster that's close by that you can have more privacy in. So it's a combination of all those things. It's a hybrid of what you're in right now. But one thing I know for sure is that free address or shared right. work environments like you're in right now mm -hmm. are a real issue in COVID, huge issue in COVID because people want cleanliness. They want, you know, hygiene and the idea of someone coming and sitting at a keyboard, sitting at a desk one day and someone else being there the next is a huge issue for COVID, huge. Mm -hmm. That will, I think, take away a great deal from the WeWorks or industriouses of their, in the workplace today. Mm -hmm. Have your thinking changed in the last weeks even where surfaces now are no longer quite the villain they were a month ago, but the air is the villain? So talk about coming back to the office. Talk about what's a real villain, what's not a villain, and then we'll go back and forth between long term and short term. There are a lot of areas that are, you know, we're really focused on right now. And clearly, you know, spacing and distancing is a key issue. There is no doubt that air and the filtration of air is a major, major issue in closed environments. As we're learning more and more about COVID, you know, being in open air environments, operable windows that allow natural air and light to come in the space are much more advantageous than closed environments. But if you're going to be in a closed environment, 
we're working with all you know top mechanical engineers in the world to focus on what you're going to have to do to put filters in space mm-hmm. and air changes, bringing in natural air, air changes, you know, air changes per minute per hour, right? To clean the air because you can't be recirculating the same air over and over again, which many spaces do. You need a lot more outside air. Mm-hmm. And in studies that we've been doing right now, the airflow is extremely important. And every space has a different type of airflow based on the ceiling, it's based mm-hmm. on the configuration of the space. So ventilation is a key area. But I would say, and it's something that we're heavily working on right now, is the idea of the future space. And I know you're going there. Right. The future space is going to be about touchless and frictionless. Mm-hmm. So right now, when you walk into a reception area and then you have to go on an elevator and press a button, You'll have biometric readers that will read your, like you do when you come through global entry in an airport, it'll read your face, it'll know who you are, it'll know what floor you're going to, mm-hmm. and therefore uh, programming the spaces so that you don't have to be touching a lot, opening a lot of doors or touching a lot of buttons mm-hmm. in order to make that work. And a lot of it's going to be on your phone also. We're finding from our research that there's going to be a lot of data that will be embedded on your phone, and you, like you do at an airport again to go on the plane, you'll flash your phone, and it'll be able to read and understand who you are, what your needs are, where you're going, and what you need to do, which then again will create a much more frictionless environment. It bugged me. I went to my office last week, and I had to open a very heavy brass door to get into the office building, and I wanted to like wave at it and have it open for me, (laughs) which they usually do. I was kind of pissed off. (laughs) We're designing lobbies right now. I know we're getting into this issue. You know, we're we're designing lobbies where obviously front doors should be automatic. If they're not, they're going to be propped open. Right. In the lobby, reception desks are now going to be more important than ever. Receptions in buildings for building owners and developers, uh-huh. but also the receptions of tenant spaces where potentially you're going to be temperature screened. Potentially you're going to have to sign in and let people know where you've been, where you're going. Mm-hmm. Another thing is you're going to be checking in for the elevators because only three or four people can get on an elevator at a time. You can imagine cities like LA or New York where the elevators are large and you take, you know, 10, 15 people on an elevator, only three or four are going to be able to go on an elevator at a time. So the elevator is going to have to be scheduled out. Right. It would have, can, would have changed please. the entire metaphor of Mad Men because they wouldn't have had a crowded elevator to tell half their story. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, the whole processional entry into a lobby now is going to be much different. And once you get tested and once you are temperature tested and once you check in, there'll be a secure area behind there. And no visitors will be allowed in there. It's going to be secure. There'll be decals on the floor to take you, make sure your distance, make sure there are one-way arrows going one way or the other. Mm -hmm. A major issue is a lot of buildings are going to be using their fire stairs to get people up and down. Because if you have to wait an hour or two hours for an elevator, if you're in a low-rise building, Mm -hmm. you'll take the fire stairs and go up and down the fire stairs rather than waiting for the elevator to come. Mm -hmm. And then you go, as I mentioned, the open work plan and how that will be spaced out. We actually have a software package we're using right now. When clients give us a floor plan, it automatically spaces out the work environment. Conference rooms, major issue because the large conference rooms that held 20 or 25 people now will only hold three or four. And we'll have meetings like this where you'll be in the conference room, but you'll still be coming in through virtually through a through a Zoom call into that conference room for meetings. Mm-hmm. Lots of changes in the workplace coming. Lots of you know physical changes, lots of protocols around cleaning right. and when it's cleaned and so forth. So let's go back and forth between re-entering and permanent. So sure. and I'm I'm reacting to some of the things you said. So sure. Air quality, air movement, God, that sounds permanent. That sounds long overdue. We were irresponsible. Those are bad words, but that feels like that's always going to be there, and that might not even change to the level that you do it. It feels like three people to an elevator, you need to do that now, but later on you can go back to 10, but you have to be able to go back to three. And the last comment is it feels like that front desk thing, we've been dealing with it because of post 9-11 for a long time with security, and it's, it's been inelegant. So talk about how those things mash up, and then I'll get to privacy questions too. Well, my firm, we, Gensler designs buildings and interiors. So the buildings we've been designing, even for sustainability reasons, you know, mm-hmm. for, to make sure the buildings are sustainable, 
have much more operable windows or or windows that open. Being in hermetically sealed buildings with closed air systems Mm -hmm. is not the future, to answer your question. Mm. What is the future is, especially in cities that are more, you know, have moderate climate change, like uh, Los Angeles is an example. We're designing whole walls of offices that open are operable with mm-hmm. outside patios, indoor outdoor spaces. Mm-hmm. Everyone's clamoring for that right now. So mm-hmm. the idea that it's not hermetically sealed building and that the air systems absolutely have to change, mm-hmm. that it can't be a closed system. It has to have much more you know, air changes per hour, outside air being brought into the building, HEPA filters being put on to make sure that you're filtering the air anyway, just for other emissions, not even just pandemics. So mm-hmm. I think that's a permanent that's yep. coming at us is HVAC systems. Mm-hmm. I think the the lobbies, a lot of people ask me about, was this going to be like 9-11 where we instituted some more security and then it went back again? Mm-hmm. I think that now with technology, we can now use technology in a much smarter way that'll check you in for security, but also check you in for health, but as importantly, for ease of use of a building. That when you go on that elevator, it might go back to 10 or 15 people in an elevator, but it'll know it's stopping at the ninth floor because Matt needs to get off at the ninth floor. You won't have to press the button. Mm -hmm. And it'll know when you go into your office, the temperature that you want to have that in your space. Mm -hmm. It'll know what type of setup you'll have. It'll have the computer already set up to your liking. So we're seeing much more that this is hastening, this pandemic is hastening the, in, the introduction of technology, seamless technology, frictionless technology that's going to allow us to use space a lot more efficiently and better. Uh-huh. So let's dive into that one a little bit and we'll bounce back and forth with technology as well, I suspect. But on this one, because you work in Asia, I'm thinking of privacy and the Asian cultures are used to more crowding, if that's the right word, it's probably not the right word but they're also used to more intrusive technologies and government that they're then comfortable with. And our country just reflexively can't deal with that. I can. I'm not nervous myself. (laughs) So does this fit everywhere? Does it work everywhere? Obviously, it has to pass the litmus test for Uh legalities and privacy in the United States. Right. But for things like ease of use and, and efficiencies of how people flow through a space, technology is going to become, I think, ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. I agree that, you know, we have offices in China and it's, you don't want Big Brother looking at you all the time or monitoring you all the time, which is, by the way, one of the ways they've been able to deal with COVID. They have cameras in every corner. They are monitoring everyone. Everyone gets a barcode when you check in in the morning and they know if you had COVID, they understand where you've been over the last 24 hours. Right. Now that is Big Brother watching. Yeah. But it's helping to protect them on the COVID situation. If you read recently what happened in Beijing, they shut down Beijing the minute they knew there was multiple cases. So that system, although we don't like it, that system does work more efficiently in preventing COVID because they shut things down whenever they want to, and they're watching you all the time. Clearly in the United States, it's not that way. And clearly, you know, we'll have to use technology in the appropriate way. But again, I point to as an example, global entry, when you enter an airport, right? For those of you or in your, who are listening, when you come in from another country, it scans your face. Right. It knows who you are. And that's what pulls up your history and allows you to pass into the country without going through multitudes of approvals because of you know, the scanning and soon to be coming to airports, by, by the way, in the future and offices is retina scanning, which again will scan and be able to detect who you are, you know, what your purpose is and so forth. Right. Feels really great around COVID to be able to control something like this. And in my words, the next time it happens, which I think it will in some form, or, and I think a terrorism is another threat for some reason, kind of together. But in America, those things terrify us for both good and bad reasons. To give you an example of that it's already happening already, we're, we're designing with sensors all the time. We're designing workplaces to understand how the utilization of space. Mm -hmm. We have designed many jobs now that have sensors in the ceilings or floors that detect how many people are in a space. What's the utilization of offices versus Mm -hmm. the open plan? Shows the flows and how it works. We're working with a lot of retailers right now. People don't know, but a lot of retailers that have sensors in the space, say an Apple store, Mm -hmm. where it knows 
the tendencies of their customers. When you walk in the store, you know, 60% turn right, 40% turn left. It knows where people linger in the store to put their best products. So my point is, Matt, is sensors are already being used in design prolifically right now. That's all I'm talking about is enhancing even more with smarter yep. systems. Totally agree with it. Makes total sense. So question on the office environment, then we'll move on to other sectors and other parts of your business. We've been talking about some of the reentry issues. Do you must be working with live clients who are halfway through a building and they have to make decisions today for what's going to feel permanent. Talk about those conversations. They must be more dynamic than they've ever been before. Absolutely dynamic. We're right in the middle of it right now. We're designing, you know, many prototype for workstations and offices, mm -hmm. and we're testing them right now. In fact, we're testing them on ourselves right now in our own offices. So we're learning along the way. But I, I believe that the workplace of the future is going to be one, as I mentioned, seamless and frictionless, but mm -hmm. also in the open environment, stations that are more flexible creating more neighborhoods, more districts, more places for people to meet in different work modes. Right. You know, everyone doesn't work in the same work mode. Some people want a place where they're going to have virtual conferencing like we're having right now. Uh -huh. Some people want more privacy. Some people want more collaboration. So I think we're testing right now, but I really believe there's going to be more work settings in the future. All true. And how does a landlord today, this may not be your pay grade in a different thing, how does a landlord guess at the square footage of their tenant in three years, a specific tenant, or how does a tenant plan how much space they're going to want, given that half the people are going to work from home half the time and not half the time, but still want a place to come every other day? I don't know how that how do you put that into your head to do a calculus for decisions? You're asking the question of the moment. I'm sure. That is the question. And I get that question every single day. And, you know, for those of your listeners who, who are hearing that the office is dead, it's just not the case. Yeah. Let me go into it just for a minute yeah. and then I'll give you a longer answer. We just did a work from home survey with 5,000 workers covering every demographic. And the results that came back were really interesting. We asked them, do you want to work from home? Do you want to be back in the office? Or would you want to work from home a day or two or three a week? Yeah. What came back was 12% of people right now, about our age, in our uh -huh. age bracket, said, you know what? I want to work from home. I like this. It works for me. I don't need to go in the office. 12%. 50% uh -huh. of the people, 50% of the people said they want to go back now. And those 50% are mostly made up of Gen Y and Gen, Gen Z, the millennials that are in the workplace. And what they're saying is, I have no privacy at home. I work in a small flat. I have children. I have parents. I have roommates. Right. And I need to go back to the office now. So for all those articles that are coming out saying that everyone wants to work permanently at home, that's just not true. 50% yep. say they want to work back. There is those in the hybrid that say, they want to work from home maybe one day a week or two days a week in a mm -hmm. hybrid situation. Mm -hmm. Just to dispel the thought that the office is dead, the office is very much alive and there's a population sitting there right now that says they want to go back to work. Right. I believe that the work square footage is going to change. I think that in some cases, some offices might need more square footage or more area because for, for spacing purposes to space things out. For example, conference rooms and spacing those out. In other cases, some clients I'm talking to right now are talking about a hub and spoke kind of situation where they have their main offices, right. but they'll have some smaller satellite offices in the suburbs so you can choose which office you want to go in. So there's a myriad of different uh, solutions that are being discussed right now from centralized offices and right. what the square foot per person would be to potentially hub and spoke and satellite offices set up. But the one thing I do know is that, you know, sitting on these virtual calls like you and I are right now, yep. and I'm talking to a lot of people every day and a lot of clients, what's making this work right now is that everyone's home. So if you need to call me or I need to have a call with you, I can set something up and I know you're there right. because I know you're online and I know you're working. Mm -hmm. The minute our people start to go back to work mm -hmm. and 30, 50 percent of the people are back to work it breaks the whole chain of the efficiency of what we're working in right now. Mm -hmm. It just completely breaks down. And I believe the office, and this is the most important point, the purpose of the office 
is to come together and collaborate. The brand and culture of an organization, say Gensler, right. we have 6,000 people sitting at home right now, and they're working efficiently. It's working just fine. Mm -hmm. The problem is our culture, even you can't get culture sitting on a call like this. You have to bring your people together. You have to have the idea of collaboration, the idea of mentoring and coaching people, career growth from people. And that's hard to do on a flat screen with a bunch of boxes. I call it Hollywood squares, mm -hmm. where everyone's on the Hollywood squares. It's about human interaction. It's about human experience. And so that's why, whether it's office or hotel or a retail center, it's all about the human experience. And so this part, this efficiency that's created in our lives, this mm -hmm. new efficiency is wonderful, mm -hmm. but it only goes so far. And I think people are yearning for that experience. I'm going to use the Thanksgiving dinner, have a kitchen ready to cook Thanksgiving dinner as an analogy for this. It's a funny one, but I'm just betting that when you all put all those people together and you get back to normal, even post-COVID, post-vaccine, it's safe to do whatever you want to do, that some people will be in that hybrid group, your 38%, who work from home a couple few days a week when they never did before. Does Absolutely. the office have to be ready to cook Thanksgiving dinner? Meaning, does it have to be sized and scale for the whole thing to be there all at once, which only happens twice a month? Well, pre-COVID, we were already designing for exactly what you're discussing, flex space, where you're not designing for the Thanksgiving meal, you're designing it for dinner each night, right. where people can come into the office and have a comfortable place to work, but it flexes. And we had more free address locations where people could come in. We were creating incredible lobbies where people can work in the lobby and feel at home in the lobby and get all their technology done in the lobby, as well as you know being at home. So I think what this is moving us towards, and that's where you're going with this, is that it needs to be flexible. The millennials want to work at the office and be with their friends, and they right. want to also go out after the dinner at night and socialize with their friends. I think uh, the older population is okay with working from home one or two days a week, and that's fine too. And we need to now create these flexible settings that allow for the ebbs and flow for the peaks and valleys of when people will want to be in the office. Mm -hmm. But I do know people will want to, I'm, I'm presenting probably 10 times a week in this medium, Right. but I promise you that I'm going to be going back 70, 80% of my time to be presenting live again, because there's nothing like a live presentation to be able to experience the whole presentation versus being in this medium. Absolutely true. And it's interesting because um, so I, we've been having our podcast show for three years and the podcast concept in real estate right now has been eclipsed by the big Zoom meetings. But these big Zoom meetings suggest that you're sitting around and you can hang out and watch a video screen for an hour. And the podcast medium suggests you could be walking, bike riding, commuting. It doesn't matter. You don't need full attention. So right. I think that that's actually going to shift back to podcasts because people don't have the time to dedicate an hour in their crazy schedule to a Zoom when they're back in normal life. Nor the attention span, frankly. You know, I sit on these calls and I have half an hour calls, 15-minute calls. Right. And what I find is, again, it comes back to this human experience and interaction. You know, when you go to a meeting, you spend 10 minutes shaking everyone's hand and right. getting to know them and asking them about them personally. And usually the decision gets done in the last 10 minutes in the meeting right. when you're walking out the door and they t and you're talking about what needs to be done next. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're lacking in these kind of, you, you drop into a call, right? you know, there's a subject matter, you make a decision, there's very little social interaction. There's just right. the meat of the meeting and then you're on to the next one. For those of us who have ADD, it's a great way of getting things done, <laughs> but it doesn't solve the human interaction piece, yeah. especially for companies that are in sales that need to sell something. Right. It's really hard to do in this meeting. Well, you can't establish a relationship, and this is a rabbit hole, but I'll just I'll go there. I keep saying this to people, which is I'm one of the people who might wind up working from home a whole lot in the future because this has worked pretty well for me, but I'm mature in my career. I built my relationships I can count on my relationships and I build a lot of credibility in the world. So I can deal with that. But if I'm a 20, 30, 40 year old building myself up, then the interpersonal stuff is you got to go do that. Absolutely. And for that 30 or 40 year old or even 20 year old, right? How about the mentoring and coaching they get totally true. from their peers and from, you know, from leaders around the firm? It's very hard to do, mm -hmm. you know, to have sessions like this. 
where you're getting that, you know, individual mentoring and coaching that people right. get from being from the live experience. So this segues to the next topic of question I had for you, which is, is urbanization and density the culprit of COVID and therefore dead for the rest of human history? <laughs> I exaggerate the point to make the point, but comments about what that really means for cities and how we go forward. Again, we've been really focused on the future of cities and shaping the future of cities. And yeah. we think that through our research, that cities are getting a bad rap, mm -hmm. that it's not density, it's crowding. That's the issue. Mm -hmm. And you only have to look so far at cities that like Seattle or Denver or LA that have closed down the streets and now taking over the public realm for people to stroll, to bike, you know, to, you know, now, now you're seeing restaurants as the world, as the U.S. opens up, you're seeing restaurants putting their tables, chairs in the open public realm space on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And I think it's this idea of taking our city streets back Mm -hmm. for people instead of cars that are CO2 choke filled city streets. Right. You know, we've seen this over and over again, the example right now in our cities where now the public realm is back to green space and amenity space and restaurant space and strolling space and not this idea of a 12 foot side fork that everyone's, you know, pushed into. So it means public parks, you know, the, the public realm of the sidewalk, what's happening in our cities, people are taking over the parking spaces. Right. unused parking spaces and using them for outdoor spaces also. So we think this is another renaissance that's occurring, that it's not, you know, cities are getting wrapped that the density is what's causing COVID and it's crowding. It's the crowding of these, these cities where we're, we're pushing too many people into smaller spaces, mm -hmm. but it's the way we design our cities to the future. They're going to matter. The urban planning, mm -hmm. you know, the strategic placements of parks, the, Taking, not putting such an emphasis on cars, mm -hmm. which is, I'll segue really quickly to something that I've been talking about a lot really quick, yeah. is, you know, we've been focused on somewhere in 10 to 15 years, we're going to have driverless cars. Right. And if we have driverless cars in our future, in all our future in 10, 15 years, then cars won't be parking on our city streets. They'll be pulsed from another location, centralized location, which means we can take those parking spaces back for the public realm for people. Mm -hmm. We can take all the gas stations that exist out there and use those for parks and any many space and green space. So I think there's this renaissance going on. You know, the car was created by Ford in 1917 and our cities have been designed around the car. Yeah. And now with what we're going through with COVID, which proves our city streets do work when you allocate the right amount of space for them and our parks do work. And in the future, because of driverless cars, we have the ability to really take our city streets back for people and design our urban environment the right way for vibrancy, for mixed use, for walkability, for dynamism in our cities. Do we see that? I'm thinking of Tokyo. I'm thinking of Barcelona. Just real. It just flashed on great these example. great cities where you get to walk and cars are not really there. Maybe it's just taxis. Great examples of unbelievable walkable cities, you know, right. cities where it's not dominated by the car. You know, it's it's such a great example. Uh -huh. By the way, a great, another great example I've been using is Central Park was created during a pandemic right. to deal with people getting out. It's a great story. So even Central Park was created to deal with a, with a pandemic at the time. So if we did it then, we can do it now and we can remake our cities. We can relook at our cities not taking away this idea of density and urbanity, but dealing with the crowding issue. Okay, so then I got crowded, I got dense. I want to talk about choke points, because if you're going to be dense but not crowded, but I'm going to be crowded at a rock concert because I actually want to be dancing to some stranger next to me. It feels better when I hear the boss do that, just for me personally. But what does that look like for the things that we come together for? Think of stadiums, think of subways. What are those choke points and how do they work? You're a designer. Well, we're, we're working right now on many stadiums and arenas as an example. And, you know, the biggest issue going on right now is the spacing of people. You know, that the six foot rule is really putting an issue. We're solving all the other issues. You know, ticketless environment, individualized food service. Again, use of technology. We're spending a lot of time on frictionless technology in stadiums and arenas. Or on your phone, it'll know your preferences. But the issues on live entertainment is, is that if you are a season ticket holder, 
which season ticket holder do you say can't come to the event? Right. And that that's where it starts to fall apart. Once we have the the vaccine, I really believe that again, this will be a renaissance in live entertainment that will be much more seamless for going to a concert. You won't have a paper ticket. You'll be able to know where you're seating. You'll be able to order food off your phone. Lots of efficiency ways of directing you the most efficient way to either park your car or enter the arena mm -hmm. and different events that are occurring within the arena itself. So we're working right now with a, a, a incredible clients on this. Is a major issue to solve around live events. And, and think again, just restate what you just said, both in the interim period, the go back quickly is their way to go to a concert six feet apart. But then when there are things after the vaccine, you still, it will still be different and those investments won't be a waste. Absolutely. It'll, I, I think ultimately it will, all of these investments, especially in the seamless technologic, just like I was mentioning in office, the flow of people and how people arrive and how people go to their seat and how people go get something to eat will totally be much more seamless. But then permanently, we will be back to cities, we'll be back to concerts, we'll be back to events, but will we be back in the subway and the bus? Talk about the, the choke Great question that I was going to raise that before. And that for sure is certainly a choke point, say cities like New York as an example. Right. Major issue, you know, we have a very, very large office in New York and most of our people come by subway or the Long Island Railroad or, mm -hmm. or Amtrak. And so it major issue in, in a city like New York and they're dealing with it. They're obviously cleaning all the cars. They're fogging the cars to try to make it palatable. Right. Uh, but it's definitely a choke point right now. For cities like Los Angeles, believe it or not, the city that I'm in, people are now worried because everyone will drive to work because that'll be a safe way. And now the freeways will be even more crowded going into work. So if there isn't a panacea in L.A. either because everyone will be driving. You know, and so there's no real good solution right now except for unbelievable cleaning protocols for our subways, for our trains in the short term. I'm a big advocate for mass transportation for our major cities to create neighborhoods that you travel from one to another with. And as I mentioned before, in the future, there will also be driverless cars. Mm -hmm. I do want to translate back to one thing, Matthew, because it's something that we've been talking about and working on. And we call it the 15 minute city. Hmm. And what that talks about is, and if you think about where you live or I live, during COVID, everyone has been live, work, and playing within 15 minutes of their home. Mm -hmm. That means you're walking to the local store right. when they were open again, or you're walking to, you know, you're getting local recreation and so forth. And so what we're seeing is also, is this is really pushing for the idea of livable, walkable neighborhoods and cities that are 15 minute within a 15 minute convenience zone. Mm -hmm. And whether you're in a small city and you can, you're close to downtown in a small city in the suburbs, or whether you're in New York and you have these mini districts or mini neighborhoods, right. that is the future. That people are looking for vibrancy. I don't see the vibrancies of cities going away. I see them as more mixed use centers where people live, work, and play, but within a 15 minute walkable zone. Well, the, we'll come back to work within that 15 minutes because that's complicated, but it's interesting. This is back to the future, not back to the past. I either attended a lecture or it was on my podcast with him, with Andres Dewani, and we were talking about cities. And he said, here's how it works. Every, and I think he said 15 minutes. Within every 15 minutes, you think of Connecticut Avenue in D.C. or Wisconsin Avenue, kind of about every 15 minutes, there's a group of stores. And that's how it works. It probably works that's that right. way all over the world in a natural way. And it works in that way in New York, by the way, because the subways are about, you know, that the 15 minute walk between one subway station and another and that density in stores happen around that. Right. That's even the same thing for cities like L.A. that it's much more of a sprawl. But you have a subway that's being built right now that'll connect different parts of the cities within 15 minutes. Right. walk distance you can live work and play within those areas yeah here's a question it's a political question so I, I say it carefully and cautiously but it came up on a prior podcast which is are great cities or our national treasures and i'm going to get like teary-eyed and i think in new york which i love and hate at the same time i gotta admit but new york has to exist it has to be successful for our country to work in my way and I don't know the obligation. If you sit outside of New York, you go, what's wrong with those people? They're in this crazy, dense environment. They don't know how to manage their budget. They're like all messed up. But that's just the nature of having a dense place. 
And so these issues come up in those cities, but we have to support and sustain those places. We can't let them have the deferred maintenance they have. It's a soapbox. But any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Uh, uh, the cities are our future. You know, you think about cities. For the first time in human history, more people live in cities than not in the world. More than 50% of the world's population lives in cities. Right. 70% of the U.S. population lives in cities. Incredible. 80% of the GDP in the world is in cities. Mm-hmm. And I'll call out the negative side, 70% of all CO2 emissions is cities. Mm-hmm. So that's why my firm, we are so focused on redefining and shaping the future of cities because that's the future. And you just raised a major issue and they will be vibrant. You know, they will come out of this, you know, stronger and more vibrant. We really believe in cities. There's a lot of issues to be solved. We haven't talked about health and wellness and we haven't talked about education yet, but yep. there's a lot of issues around cities right now and, and all, you know, live, work, play, educate, health and wellness, all those issues are major, major issues. But Cities are vibrant and cities are our future. I really mm-hmm. believe that. And talk about, and then we're going to shift subjects, but talk about, I don't want to use the word secondary cities, but maybe that's the answer because we've been thinking of, we referred to only the great huge cities of the world. Have you seen more work or more trends or does more, do more of the offices go to Charlotte, Nashville, Austin, gosh, they're all in the Sun Belt, Denver, whatever, or even smaller than that? I think both. I think, again, if people are looking for these, especially millennials, remember I, another statistic, more than half the workforce today are millennials mm-hmm. and they don't want to commute an hour to work. They don't want to go on the train and right. they don't want to be in a car for an hour. They want to live, work and play where in, in a city, mm-hmm. whether it's in a vibrant city, you know, major metropolitan city, or whether it's a suburb, they want to ride their bike to work. Mm-hmm. They want to walk to work. So, the idea of these hubs, these dense hubs, whether it's the main city, neighborhoods within the city, or the suburbs, that's the future. That's why you're seeing people who move out of the major cities are moving to these hubs places where they can live, work, and play, obviously have a great job in that city and and, and live a great life. Mm-hmm. Totally agreed. So let's pivot the conversation. And we started this, and our whole conversation has been about covid and my last like three podcasts have all been COVID, except we got interrupted by something brutal that's always been there, which is the George Floyd murder. And we can't not have a conversation that touches upon that. And Black Lives Matter, social equity, kind of mash those up. How does that change your lens in a, the planning you do? And then we'll pivot to your company. It's a very, very important point, you know, you know, and for us, it all starts with design. Design has a profound and unique opportunity to make a difference in the world. And that's the world that I'm in. We're designers. Mm -hmm. And my firm is dedicated, you know, to strategy. We have strategies in fighting racism. It's a very, very important subject to us. As the largest firm in the world, we believe in diversity. I'll talk about some of the strategies we put in place, but the first one we've already been talking about already was just really to pursue equitable design solutions in our cities and communities. And that means that we're designing in black communities. We're designing with black developers. We're designing great places and spaces and in parts of the city that aren't desirable right now by certain people and making it equitable, making it profound and unique for the people living in that district or neighborhood. So it's a really important point. We have, again, we're in 50 cities around the globe really important point. We're working in uh, Chicago and LA and New York, major metropolitan cities and areas. I'm working on vibrant solutions, urban planning solutions and design solutions. You know, for us also as the largest firm, for us, we're increasing very much so the mentoring and coaching and hiring. Black lives do matter. We really believe in diversity. So we are putting a lot of emphasis on that. We have a diversity scholarship and a Black Lives Matter scholarship. Mm-hmm. that we've created, where we have a design competition all around designing for these great urban environments that we're working in. Mm-hmm. We're creating education opportunities for Black students. We have a, where we give scholarships. That's what I was looking for. We have, we have a Black Lives Scholarship program where we have Black students that are working in our firm, that intern in our firm, and work, and then get permanent jobs in our firm. And then we're working with, as a large firm, 
we have a lot of influence with all our vendors, with all our consultants. We work with hundreds and hundreds of consultants, and we're working with them to ensure that together we're increasing the opportunities for Blacks that are in our community. And then the last one is we're partnering with our clients. And our clients all are creating or have created incredible inclusion programs. And so we're working with our clients, taking our programs and matching with them and moving that forward. So those are five key strategies, Matt, that we have focused on, we're laser focused on, we're moving forward with. Because I want to talk about diversity for a second, because diversity is also about diversity of thinking. Right. And we have people in our firm that from 100 different countries, we have people speaking so many different languages. And we believe the best ideas in design mm -hmm. come not from single source thinking, from a diversity of cultures, people from different cultures, from different backgrounds. I was just on a call this morning where we had five different offices on a call designing for a client. Mm -hmm. Now, why would we do that for? Because it creates that diversity of thinking. The innovation comes from, if you listen to Steve Jobs, he said this. Right. Innovation comes from people from different backgrounds, different cultures coming together. And that's where the sparks really fly. Uh -huh. So I, I, I can't emphasize enough in, in our field, in my field of design, diversity and inclusion and diversity of ideas is so, so important. Uh -huh. And one thing you didn't mention is diversity of age perspectives, because we talked about a little bit in the conversation, because my viewpoint as a 60-year-old white guy looking at the world and what I need is really different than what a young person needs. Absolutely. I mean, you know, even in our firm, we what makes our firm so vibrant is we have people that have been with our firm 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. And then, as I mentioned, we have 50% of our firm are millennials. So it's this company should reflect, I believe, the diversity of the city that you're in. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we really believe, my partners and I really believe this, that that diversity should be reflected in the makeup of the firm and how you're thinking about moving that forward. Yeah. One thing for our listeners, listen to my podcast a year or so ago with Phil Freelon, who was a black designer architect, and he has a scholarship fund. He passed away, unfortunately, about eight months ago, but he was one of the designers of the amazing African-American History Museum. Oh, fantastic. That's great. What a great museum. Fabulous. Oh, and they really, the museum, this is when architecture talks to the subject matter in a way that gets you right in the stomach. Yeah, no, absolutely. Our field is fantastic because we have tons of opportunities. We have so many different areas when people join us to really excel at. And mm -hmm. so one of the other things I didn't mention is we're reaching out, we're working with an uh, organization called NOMA, which is the Minority Architects, mm -hmm. National Minority Architects, mm -hmm. in training and learning and bringing on interns within our firm. And then reaching down into junior high schools and high schools to tell these students, what an architect does. Most people don't even know. They know what a doctor does. They know what a lawyer does. But most people don't know what a designer does, what an architect does. Mm -hmm. And we're, so we're really trying to reach out to as many people to really get the word out about what, how can design can really make a difference in the world and create an opportunity for you know, right. African-Americans, for diversity across our entire globe. Well, it brings more sensitivity, particularly to the, you just described, neighborhoods that might not have been well invested in bringing great bases, great planning, great buildings to. That's really important and a game changer to raise lives. Absolutely. And creating, frankly, more affordable housing, another major issue we haven't talked about. You know, our cities are really lacking affordable housing. And, and unfortunately, some of cities like, say, uh, San Francisco Brutal. are forcing affordable housing out of the city because it's so desirable. And so we've got to make room for affordable housing. And then the last piece that we've been focused on is homelessness. Mm -hmm. And as designers and architects, now we're working with our cities to design for the homelessness, to make affordable housing, make environments for the homeless that make sense, that are deal with them as human beings, not mm -hmm. just trying to deal with the problem and put them from one location to another, but create permanent housing that makes sense for them. Fair deal. And I would love to drill on that one, but I'm not going to. That's been a common discussion in uh, leading voices because we have people talking about affordable housing. We haven't yet gone to homelessness, but we will. But let me ask you a few things about Gensler. And this is a question I asked Art when we had our conversation, Mr. Gensler. I have this image from maybe the movies or Ayn Rand or something of the genius lone 
person coming up with a brilliant idea and design is about that. And Steve Jobs may half look that way and half look the other way. And then I think of large groups create vanilla. And I don't know that's true. So what is genius about artistic vision versus group think to come up with all these ideas that need to be put in together? Well, first of all, Art is an incredible mentor of me. You know, we speak often and he's an incredible leader of our firm, the founder of our firm. And Art always said, first lesson is he always hires people smarter than you. He always said, I, you got to hire people smarter than you. And in our field, and what's made our firm so successful, and really Art started this, it's called the One Firm Firm. Mm-hmm. And what that means is one seamless integrated structure, one seamless integrated firm around the world that we're all in this together. It's a very mm-hmm. flat organization. Mm-hmm. It wasn't always about art. It's about the people, people mm-hmm. first organization. Mm-hmm. And that has permeated our firm to let us grow. In 2000, we were about, excuse me, 2010, we were around 2,000 people. And now we're 6,000 people. Why is that a creative organization? Because mm-hmm. we really believe in collaboration. I mentioned the diversity of thinking and the diversity of strategy before. Mm-hmm. But in most positions in our firm that are very different, mm-hmm than most other firms. Usually architecture firms are led by one ego, maybe two. We have two leaders in every position in the firm. And you'll ask why, why does two leaders make sense? It'd be quicker to get have one leader. My partner, Diana and I, Hoskins and I, are both co-CEOs of Gensler. Everyone has aces and spaces, things they're great at, not so great at. And when you team people together that have different aces and spaces, one plus one equals five. And that's mm-hmm. Diane and I are very different people, but together right. we're incredible friends and together the dynamism is amazing. Whether it's an office or 50 offices, we have two or three leaders. Most practice areas have two or three leaders. Mm-hmm. And what that creates is this incredible collaborative organization. At the end of the day, even from a financial standpoint, all the money goes in one till. Mm-hmm. And it's not about I, we're a we organization. We're a we organization all the way through everything we do. And what that sets up is this idea of collaborative design, where every idea is a great idea. And it's not a singular idea, but it's a combination of different ideas from around the world that we coalesce and pull together that creates innovation and great designs. Mm -hmm. And so again, we have so many different committees and initiatives within our firm that are around collaborative design for our clients. Mm -hmm. And and it's made a huge difference for our firm. We call it a constellation of stars, or a constellation of stars. Not about one star, or a constellation. And it's incredible because the camaraderie, the feeling of accomplishment, the feeling that we're making a difference in the world, mm-hmm. that we're creating a better world for the, through the power of design is just amazing. It's allowed me, I started in the firm 40 years ago. I've been with the firm 40 years mm-hmm. and I've never once thought about leaving. And I didn't ever think I was going to be co-CEO of Gensler. I started as a junior designer right? and I always have been given the opportunities. Mm-hmm. So why would I leave a firm that always gave me the, the opportunity to pursue my passions? Mm-hmm. And Art was pivotal in that. I bet he was. I tell you lots of Art Gensel stories if we had more time. I have a couple of wrap-up questions, but before that, what am I missing? What's the thing that you might want to share that we haven't talked about, kind of still thinking about the COVID environment and coming out of it? I think the big thing we haven't talked about, and it's huge, is climate change. Mm-hmm. And how Thank you. COVID is a pre- Lim, this is a test for us as a society on how we're going to deal with climate change. You know, it's about resilience, the resilience of the world and resilience of cities. And now it's gone from climate change, which we know by 2030, if the temperature goes up to Celsius, we're in really deep yogurt. Right. And we also have rising seawaters around the world mm-hmm. to now we have this health and safety issue in front of us, this pandemic that has really sent an alarm through all of us. Mm-hmm. But in our opinion, this is the precursor to climate change. And if we don't wake up, if we just create a vaccine for COVID and we don't wake up to the idea that we have a huge societal issue in front of us, a challenge for all, mm-hmm. all of us to take on. Mm-hmm. And as an architect and designers, Gensler and the largest firm in the world, 40% of all CO2, 40% of all CO2 is buildings. So we have this responsibility to design our buildings that are not taking energy from the grid, but giving energy back. Mm -hmm. Designing cities of the future that are resilient and sustainable. So I do think this is a milestone moment for the world. It's a pivot point in the history and future of the world. 
because COVID, and I hope and pray, and I'm seeing right now that we're going to have this vaccine and we're going to be able to solve this, but it's the precursor. We need to solve that climate change issue over the next 10 years for our children and our children's children. And that's, I think, what the biggest issue of all that we're facing. Thank you. Thank you. It, it's interesting. Well, in Leading Voices, I, I keep saying this, but what we do in real estate matters. Our work is not value neutral. We created the suburbs and the car culture. We implemented that which was created that you talked about before. That's right. And our industry can is going to be there getting us out of those concurrent issues. And if we don't, then we're not standing up to that, which our responsibility. And maybe George Floyd brings together, hey, we do have responsibility and we can make a difference. And COVID has shown that we can work together in this shocking way, actually. It's amazing what this has done. And I think this will pull, I hope this will pull our leaders together. I hope it'll pull, which I think is, a. Ma- I don't want to be political, but it's a major issue for us. Yep. Because if we don't start to dive into this issue right now, we're going to be right where we are with this pandemic without a solution. There won't. There's no vaccine right. for climate change yet. And so we have to solve this issue. And again, from an urbanistic and from an architectural standpoint, we're working on designs now that are progressive, that are net zero. And I mentioned before, one of the major issues that's coming at us we, that doesn't become a subject is the rising seawaters. Mm-hmm. So... You know, you take cities like New York and lower Manhattan. Well, Wall Street will flood if there's a one foot rise in sea rise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, cities like Venice are already going underwater. Mm-hmm. You know, the cities around the world at a low level that will be completely covered by water. Mm-hmm. So these are major, major shifts that are going to take place over the next 10, 20 years. And that's what I said. This, that's why I think this is such an important yeah. moment. For us, a wake-up call. And every dollar we spent, and I want to say in our industry, it's not every dollar we spend, every hundred million we spend, because we spend in hundred million chunks. And in those chunks, you're making bets on a chessboard about sea level rise. So make exactly. the bet about three feet higher <laughs> or whatever it is. It better be resilient for another couple of pennies on that bet. And I do have to give cities credit. There's cities like Miami that are taking real positive steps right now on, on sea rise. But I... I think this issue, and I, you know, with the trillions of dollars that are being spent by governments around the world right now, this climate change is even a bigger event that we're going to be spending trillions, more and more trillions of dollars on. Totally true. To try to try to well, fix. And it does get political because it goes to what's the public realm and what does the public will need to come together to do. We won't go further than that one, but it brings fundamental questions about what society is about. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I think this upcoming presidential election without being political is an extremely important moment. (laughs) Last two questions. You have advice for a young person coming into the real estate business. What would that advice be? If I have one minute, I'll tell a quick story. Yeah. Okay. I was born in New York and my great grandfather started a cheese store and left it to my father, a cheese store. It's called Cohen's Dairy. Okay. And my family always thought that I was going to be in the cheese business. I'm an expert on cheese. And so I worked there since I was five years old. And I learned early in my life that I love putting things together. I love creating things. I love sketching. And my father, unfortunately, in high school, found out he had cancer. And he, unfortunately, was going to die in the next couple of months. And we had a decision to make as a family. And that was, he came to me and he said, I want to sell the store because I want you to pursue your passion. And your passion is architecture and design. Wow. That sits with me all the time. And so I tell students this all the time where people are just starting out. Mm -hmm. If you follow your passion, Mm -hmm. if you follow what you love to do, Mm -hmm. you'll always be successful and you'll always be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So I always tell young people, what is it that you love to do? And since so many opportunities in my field, what I tell young people all the time is try different things, experiment, see what you like or don't like. What are you passionate about in the world? And when you find that, you'll excel at everything you do. And I've had, for 40 years, I haven't had to look back because I found my passion. Mm-hmm. You're a lucky man. So some people don't know what that passion is. It's interesting because I talked to people about this and I got into real estate 40 years ago and I wasn't, I'm going to admit this for the first time publicly, I wasn't passionate about it. And I kept trying different things about it until I found that thing that I was really good at and really passionate about. And then it glommed together like so quickly, almost like a nuclear reaction. And then for the last 20 years, it's been heaven. 
And so sometimes you don't think, okay, I have a passion. Is it real estate? Is it the medical business? Is it entertainment? You pick one. And then within it, I find it's both you find your passion, but the passion is that place where you belong and you can make a real difference in your personality and your whole being. Exactly. You said it just so well and you found it and you have now you're fulfilled. That's cool. <laughs> Last question about fulfillment. Tell a couple of the back roads trips that you've taken that have been the best. You're a bike rider. Well, you can and I see from my background, yes. I, I'm a, I, this is my one conversation piece I talk about on every call. You know, I love, I have a passion for biking with my family. We've biked, we've been, you know, around the world. I have so many favorite trips we've taken. Probably, I would say probably, uh, you know, Australia was an incredible trip. And it's wonderful because you get to bike, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles a day. And then you also get to drink great wine at night. And uh-huh. I'm with my family. There's no better panacea for me than, you know, being with my family and also biking. So you just covered my whole life. It's Gensler, biking, family, maybe not in that order, but those are the three things that I focus on. Totally perfect. My daughter and I did uh, back roads in Scandinavia last summer. We were in Copenhagen and Stockholm and places in between. And it was half a real estate tour because we just love the urban environment and then half because of bikes and stuff. And that may have been a highlight in our case for a similar thing. It's just great. It's a blessing. The French uh, countryside isn't bad either, by the way. It's all good. (laughs) It's all good. Andy, thank you very, very much. This was a delightful conversation. There's a lot to learn here, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.